come. If you would, go ahead and take your Bibles out, and I want you to turn with me uh, to Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9. All right, we're, we're going to be, most of our message is going to be in those two chapters. I have a few others that we'll look at, but mostly Nehemiah 8 and 9. Now, I, I don't know if I'm like others here. I, I don't think I'm alone, but with all the uncertainty in the world today, I, I've been trying to look to uh, even decrease my cost a little bit in life, you know, what my expenses I have going out. Because, again, you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, and so I just want to make sure financially you're in a good place. And so I've looked to say, how can I cut some costs? And so one place that I found in my life that I could have a little bit of savings was on my DISH satellite bill. I realized something, you know, if I would just, you know, take a little bit less programming, a little less channels, then I wouldn't have to pay so much. And so that's exactly what I did. I changed my programming, decreased my channels. Now, I cannot tell you a single channel I lost. So obviously, I don't, whatever it was, I don't miss them. But I can tell you one channel I gained, all right, which is interesting. You change programs, you lose some, you gain some. And the, one of the channels that I gained was the Hallmark Channel. Now, I don't know what that's saying about the Hallmark Channel, all right? I don't know what that's saying about the Hallmark Channel, but nonetheless, it became available for my regular viewing. And I have to confess, in this strange, weird year of 2020, I've sought kind of to get in the holiday spirit a little bit early, so I have engaged in my fair share of watching Hallmark Christmas movies, okay? Please don't judge me, all right? Now, Kim and I joke regularly that we could write one of these movies, Okay? We could write it because we pretty much know what the plot is. They're all about the same, right? You know basically what happens. Somebody comes from the big city, and they go to the small town, and as they get back to the small town, they find out what's really important in life, right? All these things are, are become important, and, and they realize in the midst of that that they fall in love with somebody, right? And, and so this relationship begins. Then you know what happens, right? Like right before Christmas, something happens where they're called back to the big city. Either they're getting this promotion and they got to come today or they got this big client. So they got to get back to work today. They can't even wait until Christmas time. And so what that means is the person that they have fallen in love with, they're going to be leaving behind. And so there's the great tension. All of a sudden, the relationship is on the brink. It's going to break, right? Because it's going to happen. And, and then you know what happens at the end, right? Each time... The same thing happens. The choice is made that the relationship wins. And the person chooses the other person over the job or whatever is tempting them to leave and go back to the big city, right? We know that. Now, we can laugh at those movies, but here is why they are so appealing to people. Because we deep down inside understand that people are more important than things, right? Whatever those things are. And so we rejoice when people choose People. Now, what is the cause of this desire of people choosing people? Our emphasis on people comes from our Creator who puts an emphasis on people. For God desires that we would choose Him and worship Him with our lives and be in a relationship with Him forevermore. Now, hopefully, you've turned to the book of Nehemiah because, as I said, we're going to look at parts of chapter 8 and 9 today, but before we get there, we need to understand the background. Jonas mentioned last week in the book of Daniel how the Jewish people who were being punished by God had found themselves in captivity to the Babylonians. God, unfortunately, has at times had to punish his children because of their continued rebellion. And so if you know your Jewish history, you know that part of that punishment included the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem as well as the wall around the city. Both devastating blows for the Jewish people because the wall represented, in a way, their security and the temple was God's dwelling place where the people would meet with God. And so having both of them destroyed was truly a discouraging situation for God's chosen people. 
Let's remember, though, that God is a gracious God. So if God punishes, it is ultimately always for the purpose of calling his people back to him. Therefore, when we get to the book of Nehemiah, God is in the process of calling his people back. The temple had already been rebuilt, in fact, at this point, but the wall around Jerusalem was still in shambles. That's where Nehemiah comes in. In fact, if I were to say to you, Nehemiah, what's the next thing you're going to say? Somebody say it. Come on. Don't be ashamed. Build the wall, right? Y'all know that, don't you? Okay. Nehemiah, it is build the wall. What we all know is that Nehemiah was called of God to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Again, most in the church know that, and there's no doubt that the rebuilding of the wall was, was an exciting part of Israel's history, but it wasn't everything that happened in the book of Nehemiah. Here's what we forget, that the rebuilding of the wall was only part of the book of Nehemiah. In fact, the first six chapters of Nehemiah tell about the rebuilding of the wall, but the book of Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. Therefore, the rebuilding of the wall is only about half of what the book of Nehemiah is about. And I'm even going to maintain this this morning, that what happens in the last seven chapters of Nehemiah are more important than what happens in the first six. And I don't want you to get me wrong, all right? The first six chapters of Nehemiah contain some important and awesome happenings. I mean, if you want a great study on how to be a godly leader, read the first six chapters of Nehemiah. Nehemiah truly demonstrates how you lead in a way that pleases God. Jonas even mentioned opposition last week. Nehemiah gives another example of how to lead in the face of opposition. There is so much to see in Nehemiah's life. One would be wrong not to read the first six chapters. Also, if you want to see how God works in powerful ways to accomplish his task, read the first six chapters. You can see how God gives Nehemiah favor with the king, among other things. God's hand is all over the events in the first six chapters. God works so much, in fact, that a miracle happens, that the wall is completed in record time. And so we are all called to stand back and be amazed, really, at what God did. The problem is that we often, though, stop paying attention to Nehemiah once the wall is rebuilt. In fact, let let me even do a little quiz. You don't have to answer out loud, but if the first six chapters of Nehemiah record the building of the wall, what happens in the next seven? All right, my guess is most people, even in the church, say, uh, I don't know, all right? Only a few people would know. Maybe those that recently done an in-depth Bible study of Nehemiah. But most people say, I have no idea what happened in the last seven. I know about the rebuilding of the wall, but I don't know the rest. And so let me give you a little insight before we move on. Because as I said, the most important happenings really happen in the last seven chapters. Why is that the case? Because what we see in the last seven chapters is this. God works, you ready, to rebuild his people. The wall is important, but folks, but people are more important. We see this focus really start to happen in chapter 7. All right, the wall has been rebuilt, and then we see this important commentary in Nehemiah 7, verse 4. It says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Now, here's what we would do. We would have a tendency of reading through the text to just blow right back by this verse. However, that verse is key to seeing the situation. The wall had been rebuilt. But there are very few people in the city and no houses. I mean, do you see the issue here? Let me ask you this. What good is a city without people? None, right? It's no good. It is a shell without people. Why this verse is so key is because after that statement, you see a huge focus on the people and their rebuilding. Unfortunately, here's what we would have a tendency to do even with the rest of chapter 7. We would ignore chapter 7 because a couple of verses later, all we get is a list of names. And what do you do when you read the Bible and come to a list of names? 
you skip it. All right, absolutely, all right? I'm glad y'all are honest folks today. You don't read those names, all right? Maybe in part because we cannot even pronounce most of them, all right? I mean, Zerubbabel, Bilshan, Bigba, Paha Moab. What kind of names are those, right? And so we skip over them. But we shouldn't skip them because here's what those lists show us. That God cares about people. That God cares about individual people. The fact that God has so many names listed here is a reminder to us that God is more interested in the rebuilding of the people than he is about building the city. He cares enough to mention them. And as we can see, he cares enough to give them purpose. These people who had been broken, who had been lost, who had been displaced, discouraged, so many things now are being restored by God and given purpose again. This is truly a significant event. Now, as we look very quickly at the next couple of chapters, we'll see how God rebuilds his people. Look at this. God rebuilds people when we, number one, when we read his word. Look at how chapter eight begins. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. All right. So do you get the picture here? I mean, as the people began to come back into the city, they gathered together, it says, as one. And they told Ezra to come and to bring the book of the law of God. So basically the first five books of the Bible and read it to them. This was obviously a people hungry for God, a people who had experienced what it meant to be separated from God, who longed to have that relationship restored. And so they asked Ezra to bring the word of God to them and read it. Now, this was not a people looking for a reason not to hear from God's word. They hungered for it. And so Ezra and others began to read the word. And so you get a full picture of this. Look at what we read in verse 8. And so they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. All right, and of all the places in the scripture, right, this is the one place that most resembles what we do in corporate worship and the preaching of God's word. For notice it says they not only read from God's word, but they gave the sense of it. In other words, these leaders were helping the people understand the meaning of God's word and what it meant for their lives. That is even our goal this morning. We want to read the word of God, but we also want to give the sense of it. We want to help you understand what does this mean? What do we read here? And what does it even mean to our lives? Because folks, listen, if we read this and don't understand, what good is it? None, right? We have to understand it. Now, look at what happened in the lives of the people as the word was read in verse 6. It says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In other words, what happened was the people was moved to worship the Lord. In fact, it might be to say, to say this, this wasn't a Baptist moment, right? You know why I say that, right? Because the word was read and what did the people do? They said, amen and amen. And they raised their hand and then they fell on their face before the Lord. So it wasn't a Baptist moment, right? This might be a reminder to us that it's okay to do some of these things in worship, God doesn't necessarily condone some of the chaos that some churches experience, but it does indicate as you worship that the raising of hands, the saying of amen, the falling on your face are appropriate responses to the worship of God. And the key is that the reading of God's word prompted this worship. This wasn't an act of emotionalism by the people. It was a response that was inspired by God's word. 
We should truly understand from this that God's word is an important foundation to worship. If the word of God is not a priority, let me say this. If the word of God is not a priority, then you are not worshiping God. You might have entertainment, but not worship. As I mentioned this, I'm thankful that as Luke and Zach even play worship songs, one of the things that we always seek to be mindful of is making sure that what we sing is in line with the scriptures. The fact of that says this, that's more important than the style of the song. I've often through the years been laughed as people have criticized some newer worship songs. And the reason is because I often go to the scripture and say the song you're criticizing is really just a quote of scripture. And so when you criticize a song, you're actually criticizing scripture. Substance is the most important thing, right? Being true to God's word is what matters. God's word needs to be prominent in worship and scripture should even guide what we sing. Because when God's word is our foundation, here's what I know, the worship of God breaks out. People begin to be rebuilt. Now, when the reading of God's word leads to worship, we see that God also rebuilds people when we remember his goodness. As the word is read, we see this happen in verse 13. It says, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, notice, this is day two of the people reading and studying the scriptures. But they come across God's command regarding the feast of booths or also called the feast of tabernacles. And and the the people had been in captivity, and so this is what makes sense. It makes sense that their celebrations hadn't been taking place. They had been in bondage. But here they come across this command by God in the Scripture to celebrate the Feast of Booth. This command can be found in Leviticus 23, by the way, if anyone want to go back later today and read about it. It was a celebration remembering the time when the people were in the wilderness making their way to the Promised Land and had to live in booths, or if it makes more sense to you, they had to live in tents. In response to what they read, this is what the people did in verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. You see, the people read the command, did what God's word said, and as a result, there was great rejoicing. Now, what brought about this great rejoicing? I could probably first say this, the fact that they were obedient made them rejoice. But let's remember what the Feast of Booths was all about. It was about remembering God's goodness to his people. Specifically, it was about remembering how God had guided them and protected the children of Israel in the wilderness as they were being delivered from bondage in Egypt and as they were making their way to the promised land. It was a reminder of how God had provided in the past as a means to encourage the people in the present. See, for those in Nehemiah's day as a people who had been in their own bondage, who are now beginning to see the light of freedom, it was encouraging to look back at what God had done in the past and know that if God had taken care of the Israelites in the past, that he would take care of them in the present. And so great rejoicing broke out. Now, here's what I know. We don't today celebrate the Feast of Booths anymore. But here's what I would hope. I would hope as a people just having celebrated Thanksgiving a couple of weeks ago that we would take time and remember all that God has done for us in the past and remember that he can take care of us in the present. You see, I would hope as, a, as God's people getting ready to celebrate Christmas that we would look and celebrate God sending Jesus in order to deal with our sin problem, that we would be able to look and say, God can take care of us now. If he has done that, he can take care of us now. As a church, even now in uncertain time due to COVID and other challenges, I would hope that we could look back and say, if God took care of us in the past, surely he can take care of us now. 
Because I know this church can look back 19 years ago when we went through a very difficult time, a time of great uncertainty, a time where we pondered and wondered, are we going to be able to pay the bills? But God provided. We can look and say, since God took care of us then, God surely is going to take care of us now. What the celebration of Booth did for the people, as we saw with their great rejoicing, is it rebuilt their hope for the future. Celebrating the feast gave them pause to consider God's goodness and know things were going to be okay. And church, let me say this to us individually and and, and just as a church, all right? We are called to do the same. We are called to remember God's goodness and know, listen, it may be tough right now, may be uncertain right now, but God is still God. And if we remember his goodness, we can be comforted, have rejoicing as we move forward, knowing indeed he'll take care of us. You get that this morning? So we see God's people, and God begins to rebuild his people as they read his word, as they remember his goodness. But God also rebuilds people as they repent of sin. It is interesting as the people read God's word and remember his goodness, that this is the next thing we read beginning in chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the day, it made confession and worship the Lord their God. Here we see the people as they continue to read God's word and worship. They found themselves taking a posture of repentance. Now, why is that the case? Why is that? All right, when we think about the fact the feast of the booth was to remember God's goodness and this rejoicing broke out, why would the next thing we see be the people taking a posture of repentance? Can anybody tell me why? Why? They're rejoicing. God is good. Now they're repenting. Well, since no one's going to answer, let me do it for you. It is because when we truly consider the goodness of God, we see how far short we fall in our response to God's goodness. If you read the rest of chapter 9, you see the people reviewing the history of the Jewish people, remembering how God had been good to them, but then confessing the people's failure to follow God's will. They first mention God calling Abraham and making a covenant with him. Then in verse 9, they talk about God delivering the people from bondage in Egypt, including the miracles of parting the sea and leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They talk about God providing for their needs, even giving them his commands and laws to guide their paths. But then in verse 16, they confess that the people stiffened their necks, even choosing a leader to take them back to Egypt. In other words, saying, God, is difficult out here in the wilderness. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to our bondage. And so that's what they did. They stiffened their necks and say, God, I know you've been good, but we want to go back. In verse 18, they then mention how the people made a golden calf to worship after God had done so much for them. They go on to talk about even through the act of unfaithfulness, how God still provided and took them to the promised land and gave them great victories. Then in verse 26, the people confess how in spite of all this, that the people were disobedient to God. And from there, they mentioned how after the people had suffered for their rebellion, that God still delivered them, but then confessed how the people once again turned against God. As we looked at this entire act of confession by the people, they may have been recounting the history and the the sins of their ancestors, but here's what they were really doing. Catch this. Here's what they were really doing. They were really acknowledging their own failures, even confessing that they knew their current situation was due to their failure to obey God. Likewise, when we really look at God's goodness, we all see how much we have turned our backs on God, do we not? Let me ask you this morning, have you ever turned your back on God even though he was good to you? Has anyone here ever had God bless you financially, but then you still failed to tithe because you didn't think you could trust God with your money? Yes, thank you, Roy. All right. 
Anyone here ever had God spare you some serious consequence of which you were thankful only to go out and make the same mistake? Yeah, thank you, Roy. All right. Anyone ever made a promise to God, say, if you'll get me out of this mess, God, I'll serve you with my life, only to have God get you out of that mess, but then you fail to serve him? Anyone here ever said, well, God, this is the week. This is the week that I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. I'm going to do it, God. This is the week, only to read about three days and quit. All right, we've all been there, right? We've all had those times in our life when we didn't respond to God's goodness with our faithfulness. We are so prone to turn our backs on God. As we consider these confessions, it can be tempting to be overwhelmed and depressed. However, as we look further at the people's confession, they did something important in the confession, all right? They once again recognized the goodness of God. Listen to these verses that are a part of the people's confession. Verse 17. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Look at this. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Verse 19. In your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them for their way by which they should go. Verse 27. Therefore you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. According to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Did you notice something in the middle of all those confessions? They proclaimed the mercies of God over and over. When they wanted to go back to Egypt, God showed his mercies and did not forsake them. When they made their golden calf in his mercy, God did not part from them. When they rebelled in the promised land and suffered, God in his mercy sent saviors to save them from their enemies. When they continued to rebel, God in his great mercy did not make an end to them. God continued to be merciful. The people were moved to confession and even that confession turned them back to the goodness of God. Hallelujah, right? Let us remember that our confession is good and necessary and if we confess God, all right, if we confess, God is still merciful to us today. And here's how I know that, because in Ephesians 2, it says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, look at this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, all right, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in other words, when we were unfaithful, or when we were in the midst of our mess, when we were in the midst of turning our back on God, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, the reading of God's word that causes us to remember the goodness of God may lead us to repentance, but that is a good thing if you encounter the mercy of God and find forgiveness and new life in him. You might be one of the unfaithful that we sang about earlier, but God wants to meet you where you are. In reality, can I say this? He already has. He has already met you where you are. As we see in the fact that Jesus came to this earth that we celebrate on Christmas, he came to be like us, but without sin, so that he might become the sacrifice for our sin and redeem us from our empty lives. God met us where we're at. You see, the people of Israel experienced God meeting them where they were, and experience God rebuilding their lives, all right? And from there, they experience what we can experience as well, that God rebuilds life as we renew our commitment to him. 
Look at now how chapter 9 in, in verse 38 reads. Because of all of this, all right, in other words, they read God's word, all right, they recognize his goodness, they confess their sin, they recognize God's mercy, and it says, because all of this, we make a firm co- covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. In other words, as the people experienced this time of worship with God and renewal, they were moved to make a covenant. They were moved to make a commitment to God, all right? It's a commitment that in a nutshell, I'm going to do it this way. If you want to read all of it, go read the rest of Nehemiah today. But in a nutshell, here was their commitment. Their commitment was, God, we're going to do all that you've told us to do. God, we're going to give you the first fruits of our labor. God, we're going to be faithful in our marriages. We're going to be faithful to you in our marriages. All these things. God, in our worship of you, we're going to be faithful. But they were saying, God, we're going to live our life for you. That's it in a nutshell. It's a commitment to live for God. Not unlike, folks, what we're called to do. Because in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul writes to believers and he says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. All right, by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul was saying, in light of the mercies that God has shown to us, what is right for us to do is to live for him. Now, some of you might say, well, brother Scott, I hear all this. What's it have to do with us? Well, here's what I'm saying. Remember this. God's plans are unbroken. Haven't that what we've been saying over the last number of weeks? His plans are unbroken. What, what, God, what God's been doing, God still wants to do today. And what does he want to do? He still wants to re- rebuild lives. He wants to rebuild the lives of those who are broken. In fact, Jesus one day was speaking to a lady whose life was clearly broken. We call her, the only thing we call her is the woman at the well. That's the only name that we know her by, the woman at the well. But when you read about her life, her life was in shambles. Her life was broken. This was a lady who had no purpose in life. She was wondering. She was isolated. She was all those things. But as Jesus met that woman there, he shared some things with her. And one of the most important things Jesus said to that woman during this encounter was these words found in John 4, 23. He said, but the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Think about it. The reason Jesus said these words to this broken woman was because he knew that if this woman would worship God in spirit and in truth, then God would rebuild her life. That God could forgive her. That God could restore her. That God would give her value and purpose. That God would use her in ways that she never dreamed. Truly, Jesus spoke this truth to the woman because he wanted to see her life rebuilt. He said these words because rebuilding lives has always been God's desire. That is, again, what God was doing with the people of Nehemiah, rebuilding a broken people. God was rebuilding the life of this woman at the well, and God wants to rebuild lives today. No doubt we live in a time where lives are broken. We might even say this, folks. Today, in a year of COVID, we might even say the church is broken. We live in a time where so many people who used to be connected with church have suddenly disconnected. And if we're not careful, our current struggle could lead us to misplaced priorities. It could lead us to a place where we say this, we want to build the church that we want to see in the near future. We want to see all these seats filled again. We can say, that's what we want to see. But can I say this, folks? All right. God's agenda is much greater. God's agenda. What God wants to do is rebuild lives. Because do you understand something? We could build a church and you could fill all of these seats again and not rebuild people's lives, right? The the wall of Jerusalem was rebuilt. The temple was rebuilt. They could have stopped and said, oh, we're done. 
But was God done? No. Why? Because he was interested in the lives of people. And he said, the real work now is rebuilding those lives. And that's what he began to do. And I'm here to tell you in the church, what God wants us to do is rebuild lives. That has to be our focus. God today, hear me, wants you to make reading of his word a priority. Because he knows that if you read his word, it will lead you to worship him. And as you worship him, you will remember his goodness. As you read his word time and time again, you will be reminded that God loves you more than you can imagine. And you will begin to understand that God is the one who sustains you, that God is the one who provides for you, that God is the one who leads you to the right way. And the more you read his word, the more you will understand what a good God we have. God also knows this, that as you recognize his goodness, you will be led to repentance because you will understand how far short you have fallen from doing the will of the God who loves you. You will be confronted with all the times you rebelled against him. You'll be confronted with all the times you've turned your back on him. You'll be confronted with all the times that you've really spit in the face of God. But as you're led to repent, you will also be reminded in the midst of that repentance about the great mercy of God, about how much he loves you and cares for you. You will be reminded that though you deserve to be forsaken, God didn't forsake you. Though you deserve to be destroyed, that God didn't destroy you. That in your repentance, you will come to realize that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. That God sent Jesus to restore your life and put back the broken pieces of your life and make you whole again. You see, the biggest question you will be left to answer in the end is this. Will you renew your commitment to him? Will you choose to embrace the God who loves you? Because here's what I know, that if you choose God, if you choose to make a commitment to God, God will rejoice and your life will be blessed beyond comprehension. For who can fully understand this side of heaven, the fullness of God's forgiveness and the eternal life that he gives? No one. But the glimpse we get surely lets us know that God's goodness to us is far more than we deserve. Let me ask you today, does your life need to be rebuilt? If so, I'm asking you today to let God rebuild it. I'm asking you again today to pick up this word, begin to read it. Okay? If you don't believe what this preacher said today, that's okay. But pick up this word and begin to read it. Because if you pick up this word and begin to read it, what you will see is how good God is to you. You'll see it. Now, will you see how far short you fall from his will? Absolutely. But you will see again in the midst of that how much he loves you and he had not cast you aside. In that repentance, you'll be led right to begin, back to his love, back to his mercy, back to his grace. And you'll come to understand, again, who Jesus is, the Savior who died for us, the Savior who rose again three days later to prove he could forgive sin and give eternal life. And here's what you'll discover. And this God looks at you and says, I love you. I want to restore you. Will you accept my help? Unfortunately, here's what many of us try to do. We try to rebuild our own lives. Let me go ahead and tell you, if you try to rebuild your own life, it's not going to work. You cannot rebuild your life apart from God. But here's what I know. If you'll give your life to God and just simply say, God, I, I realize I can't do it on my own. God, I know that I've failed you so many times, but God, I thank you for your love. And I thank you, Lord, for Jesus. And I realize he's what I need. And if you'll come and confess your sin to him and say, Lord, you come in my life, you take control, here's what God will do today. He will forgive you, he will rebuild your life, and he will give you a hope, and he will give you a future. We're going to sing in a moment about God's living hope. That's what he wants us all to have today. And some of you here, listen, you've been a believer a long time. You say, well, I asked Christ in my heart a long time ago, but let's be honest, let's be honest. You've turned your back on God, just like the children of Israel. 
You've spit in his face. You've not done what he's asked you to do. And today you're still hurting as one of his people, one of his children. You're hurting. Why? Because your life's broken. Well, don't look at the person who's never received Christ and say, this is for him. No, this message is for us all. Because we all have experienced times in our life where we needed to be rebuilt in our answers in God. And I'm thankful he's a God that's in the rebuilding of life's business. Amen? You see, just like those Hallmark movies in the end, you always choose the people. I'm here today to say this. God has chosen us. He wants to forgive us. All he wants to know is this. Will you choose him? There's things out there that might be pulling you away from God to say, I'm tempted to go here. I'm tempted to leave this big God that I have. I encourage you today, would you come to this God who loves you and cares for you? And your life will never be the same if you choose to live for him. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today, and we thank you for your word. We thank you again for the life of Nehemiah and how most of all, God, his life shows us that you can take a broken people and you can rebuild their lives. And Father, we rejoice in that today because what we recognize, God, today is we are a broken people. Those in this room are broken. Those watching online, God, have been broken. And Father, what I know is this, we've all, if not now, all at some point in time of our life, we've needed to be rebuilt. And I'm thankful that our creator, our God, loves us enough to rebuild us. And so thankful for your word that reminds us of that. Thank you for your word that reminds us of your mercy and your grace that's poured out over and over and over and over again. My simple prayer this morning as we move to an invitation is people will come and they will commit to you. They'll renew that commitment. They'll cry out to you, God, and let you come and work in their lives and rebuild them. So move in our midst today. Father, pour your spirit down. I know we need it. I know we need rebuilding. I'm thankful, God, knowing that, that you're a rebuilding God. So we honor you in this moment. Father, you move by your power and your might, I pray. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.